Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm talking to James Lee, all-around great guy, high-level judge, and the person largely responsible for turning Friday Night Magic into a reality. James worked for Wizards of the Coast back in the day and was tasked with turning FNM from an idea on paper in the boardroom to the global cornerstone of the Magic player's experience that we see today. Whenever I think about FNM, I see the community coming together each week to battle, try out new things, and make new friends. James also shares with us his thoughts about the evolution of Magic as a game, a sport, and an esport. I hope you enjoy my interview with James Lee. Hi everyone, thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I am your host, Sam Tang, and today I am with a very mysterious James Lee. James, how are you? Very good, and mysterious as always, I hope. (laughs) Well, yes, you were referred by a good friend of mine that said, Sam, you really should talk to James for your podcast, and I'd love to ask you, why are you here right now? So, apparently, uh, I was referred by Brad Rutherford, And I have a reputation for being the person who created Friday Night Magic. That's a bit of an overstatement, but it basically, in the early days of Wizards of the Coast, and we're talking about that first five years, we're talking about a lot of programs that basically were in development and in creation. And so what ended up happening is that a lot of these things are the result of a bunch of people sitting around in rooms, coming with ideas, spitballing, and whatnot. So for instance, you know, we often hear how Scaff Elias is the originator of the Pro Tour. And sure, Scaff mentioned something in a meeting, and there was talk and discussion, and eventually magic happens, and someone involving gnomes and underpants or something, and then suddenly you have the Pro Tour. Uh, I have to give credit where credit is due. Uh, what ended up happening was that we were looking as a team to, for something to replace the old, very chaotic arena program. And we wanted something that was consistent, had good branding, that people would understand. And the credit really has to go to my boss at the time, Jeff Donay, who really originated the idea of something like a Friday Night Magic. Uh, from there, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, to have the job of basically making sure that it was gestated properly, that it matured, and then got delivered into the world. So if we kept on to this whole birthing metaphor, one could say that Jeff Donay is the father of Friday Night Magic, and I'm the mother. Ah. And so, and along the way, there were obviously many doctors and nurses. There was a lot of detail that we had to deal with. Uh, it was quite a complex setup because developing any global program is not an easy task. And there are a lot of legal matters, international matters, printing promo cards, advertising, and some things we really can't take credit for at all. Because, for instance, the idea of Friday Night Magic is pretty much a no-brainer because basically we are thinking, well, we don't want people playing Magic until 1 or 2 in the morning if they have to go to school or go to work the next day. And that really only leaves two days of the week where that's true. We tend to have big Magic tournaments on Saturdays. And so Friday Night Magic was pretty much, you could have had a smart orangutan in the room and maybe a couple of like lemurs or something like that. And they could have concluded, oh, let's make it Friday Night Magic because I'm pretty sure Tuesday Night Magic is just not going to sell as well. 
That's right. And there's not as good of a ring as like Saturday early morning before the big tournament magic. Exactly, right? So <laughs> And Sunday after brunch magic. Oh also. my gosh. Exactly. So basically, I just happened to have the good fortune at the time of being the global community manager whose job was pretty much to take what Wizards of the Coast was doing with their games. Of course, Magic happened to be the big one. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that there was a time that I was also Professor Oak. And luckily, that is not what I'm known for anymore because I'm terrible at anything related to catching anything that is a cool Pokemon. But... Uh, Basically, I was in that job, and so I had a chance to sit in meetings, wrangle people, fly around the world convincing people that this was a program they want to implement in their regions, uh, talk to people about promo cards, make sure the sales team and the staff that was basically recruiting our stores and putting it out there for players and store owners to know would have an awareness of it and understand what the parameters were. So basically all of that legwork and that at some point there was a birthing process. And after all these years, if you asked me like, when did we actually pull the trigger and have Friday Night Magic and no longer had Arena League, I couldn't tell you. It was some magical <laughs> time where all of a sudden there wasn't a baby and then the next day there was a baby and I was like, wow, look at this thing. And now all these years later, it's evolved into something much bigger and better than anything I could have envisioned. And it wasn't a gradual process. It was just it, the transition just happened all of a sudden? Um, more or less. Uh, basically, at least from our perspective inside the company, it seemed that way. Because basically, you work really hard on doing a lot of these programs. And you pretty much have to sign off on specifically, for instance, let's took it, look at the promo card aspect of things. You have to pretty much give some indication of why a promo card is being printed and what it's being used for. And at least up to a certain point, you want to not have duplication. So if I want to order a card that is specifically of a particular value or level of interest and give it to judges, I can't suddenly decide that this is going to be a Friday Night Magic promo because the branding would be bad. And similarly, we had to do similar things for Arena League, for Friday Night Magic, and a bunch of other programs that we had. And so at some point we use up what has been signed off on previously and a new thing comes around and then all of a sudden you have to go, well, this is a Friday Night Magic card. We can only give it out at Friday Night Magic. We better have a Friday Night Magic to happen so that people can get it. That is so interesting. And so, James, you were flying all around meeting with people and meeting with stores to try to get FNM off the ground and, and get buy-in on the program. But that is uh, somewhat vague. When you say you had to meet with people, who, who were they? My meetings were mostly involved with either internal partners or large organizations. So for instance, uh, internal partners, many people don't know that Wizards of the Coast is, I don't want to say it's more than one company, but we have a headquarters here in Seattle, which is basically what people think of as Wizards of the Coast. And it's not even Seattle, it's in a suburb called Renton. But I think the average person doesn't care that much that it's a suburb outside of Seattle. Uh, we also have an office in Europe, and we have an office in Australia that basically handles our budgeting. Now, this was 15 years ago. Today, with Hasbro's leadership and reorganizations that have happened like so many times, I can't say how all of that works anymore. When you're talking about large corporations and large multinational entities, there are always differences in how budgets are set up, who pays for what, which part of the company owns a program or handles the financing for that program. 
And so, number one, I had to sit down with people in our offices outside of the U.S. to make sure that if I said, hey, I'm announcing this new program, and I don't end up getting blowback from someone in Europe who says, hey, we just sent some promo cards to Estonia, and it cost us like $1,500, and we had to bribe a border guard or something like that. And we needed to make sure that this was something we could deliver before we announced it as a global program and that everyone understood who was in charge, where the money was coming from, and how the ultimate responsibilities for implementation would be handled. That's really interesting. Sitting in the present day and thinking about Magic, this game that we all love and play with our friends and the, the greater community, and then thinking about Friday Night Magic, I can't even imagine a time when Friday Night Magic didn't exist. And then also now listening to you about getting all these different groups of people and coordinating essentially a global effort to make it consistent and robust that I could travel anywhere in the world. It just so happened to be Friday. And then I can sit down and play some FNM. Exactly. And, and, it's, and magic in that sense has almost become a universal language. Yes. And that was rather what we were looking for. We wanted to have something where that sense of consistency could be built into our organized play. We would like to think at Wizards of the Coast and those of us from the old guard that organized play was something that really we, we, if not invented, pretty much put on the map. And the idea that players, the community could understand what they were looking forward to and expecting based on a brand that we created was very important to us. And so one of the reasons we were looking for a replacement for Arena was in the earliest days when we first had the nascent idea of organized play and Arena League was out there, pretty much all we did was throw some promo cards into a kit with a single page of instruction that any game store, comic book store, uh, university club could acquire one of these kits and do something. We had no transparency into what they were doing. Uh, it could have been good. It could have been bad. I'm sure there were many very exciting things. And of course, there was also always some feedback from some people who said, oh, my tournament organizer or my store owner or my club president got the kit and we never saw any of the promos. And then he sold them on eBay or something like that. And so we really want to create something where players could have some sense of understanding what to look forward to. And there would be accountability. If you went to a Friday Night Magic, we would have told you this week's Friday Night Magic card will be. And if you don't get that card, you'll know that something sketchy had happened. Mm -hmm. And we also want you to be able to show up and know that you could play Magic. So in the very early days of the game, before the brand became large enough and well-established enough that more freedom could be included in the program, we required that Friday Night Magic had to be either standard or a limited format. We didn't want you to be able to show up and say, oh, I didn't know what deck I had to bring to play, or I came all this way and couldn't play Magic. And so we want to make sure that the players had a protection that was built into the program that not only defended their experience, but that their expectations would be fulfilled when they showed up. That is fascinating. James, I wanted to start from the beginning. When did you start playing Magic? So that is actually a slightly embarrassing story. Uh, so I come from a generation of people who basically was there playing Dungeons and Dragons when it was first invented. And so we grew up as children thinking, oh my gosh, one day I'm going to work for the company that makes Dungeons and Dragons. And of course, living in Chicago, 
that was actually sort of something you could possibly do because the company that made Dungeons and Dragons was literally just across the border in the next state. Of course, uh, being a person who came from a nice traditional Chinese family, my parents would always say, stop playing Dungeons and Dragons and do your homework so that you can get a real job. And so I still remember when I first got my call to become the global community manager at Wizards of the Coast, that I basically communicated to my parents. I said, you'll never guess what I'm doing now. I'm actually working for the company that makes Dungeons and Dragons. But in those early days, we basically were these nerdy gamers. I played chess professionally for a while. I played a lot of D&D. And then life happened. I went to university, seminary, graduate school. And during that whole time, I was still very much involved in gaming. And I also read a lot of comic books. And for those of you listeners who are not aware of how comic book readers used to work back in the olden days... What would happen is that there would be one day a week when all the new comic titles would come out and your comic store owner would set aside the ones that you were subscribed to through his store and put them in a box. And you would show up every Tuesday night or Wednesday morning and say, hey, where are the new comics? And he would hand you a pile of 20 or 30 titles that you would never get through before the following week's titles came. So you would just accumulate more and more comic books and never be able to finish them. Well, one day I walked into my comic book store and he says, hey, James, there's this new game you should really try out. It's very exciting. It's called Magic the Gathering. And he had some booster boxes behind the counter. And since we were just shooting the breeze like we normally do, uh, I looked at this game. He had some packs opened and it was either alpha or beta. I remember it was very early, blackboarded stuff. And my first reaction was, boy, this is ridiculous. Uh, first of all, who's going to pay $3.50 to try to collect some cards to build a deck to play a game? Remember, this is in the mid-90s where, you know, before huge inflation made it so that everybody is walking around with like $100 bills and whatnot. So it was fairly expensive. And my first reaction was, here's a game targeted at teenagers and they just wouldn't be able to afford to play it. Uh, I also wasn't that captivated by the artwork. I thought the production value was only medium at best. And so I really wasn't that sold on it. However, that fall, I was teaching a class in history in Chicago. And one thing that a lot of people don't think about uh, when it comes to teachers is that in any class where you're teaching students multiple periods during the day, your first period students think you're kind of a moron. I get up in the morning, I roll into my classroom, I'm not really sure what's happening, I can't remember the curriculum for that day. And so the class goes long, I'm paging through the textbook trying to figure out what's going on. But by my 10th period class, they think I'm a genius. I've taught the class five or six times already, I've memorized all the text from the textbook, and my students' questions are ones that I can already anticipate. So that class ends early all the time. But because of the regulations of the Chicago public school system, I couldn't just let my students leave and run amok before the bell. So my class would end early, and I would pretty much let my students do whatever they wished to do and entertain themselves. One day, a bunch of my students were in the back of the classroom playing magic. And I was wandering around, engaging with them, and I saw them playing. I said, oh my gosh, Magic the Gathering. I heard of this game. Somebody sold me a bunch of packs a while back. And one of my students said, oh, Mr. Lee, this is amazing. We didn't know any old people played it. <laughs> and apparently it was all the rage. My, my students had it all, like all over the place. 
And I basically sort of became famous as the high school teacher who played Magic. And they were amazed that I had some of these old blackboarded cards because at this point, revised was all you could buy. Oh, so you had alpha and beta. Right, exactly. So they were shocked that I had these crazy cards. Uh, and we would do things like I'm going, here, you can have this stupid blackboarded mox that does nothing but make mana, but wow, your force of nature wins games. So I'm going to trade you this mox for that force of nature because it's worth so much more. Wow. So that was the milieu in which I kind of got roped into eventually playing Magic, mostly because my students played. And for people who know the history of Magic, it didn't take very long before the game really took the nation by storm. So from that time where I poo-pooed the game as not being very awesome, to the point where I discovered my students were playing it, to the following summer when I was starting to run tournaments regularly because there were just only so many adults who were used to dealing with young people and organizing events, it had gone from being something that was a new invention to something that had just become an international phenomenon. You know what's fascinating about what you talk about, James, is um, someone said to me not too long ago about this concept of finding things. Yes. And the vast majority of people that I had spoken to about Magic the Gathering, I've always asked them, how did you first find Magic the Gathering and get into Magic the Gathering? And I think it is 100% of the time, it is always through another person. Yes. It's always by people. The way I found the game was a, a family friend, their oldest son or youngest son, I think, was going to college, University of Illinois, or Indiana, excuse me, and then just handed over a brown paper bag and mm -hmm. it was filled with magic cards and i had no idea what they were and then you know the dad was like yeah my son is too old to be playing this game but you're a kid so you should play this game and i was like i don't know what this is but sure and i had no idea how to play the game so i kept it in kind of like my toy chest for five six years right every so often i would stare at the card art organize the cards read the cards read the flavor text and then one day I was in middle school, I was in band, there was like a free period or something like that. And we just had like an hour of nothing to do. And there were like 15 kids just in the corner playing magic. And I was like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, oh, we're playing magic. And I was like, I know this game. Mm -hmm. I was like, I have a whole bunch of these. I have no idea how to play. And they were just like appalled. They were like, you have to bring them in. We have to show you how to play. Like... And that's how I built my first like green deck. And I did have Force of Nature in those first yes. big pile of cards. And that is so true. I think one of the things that can happen for companies like Wizards of the Coast and for games like Magic the Gathering is that sometimes these buzzwords get thrown around a lot and people start to get wary of them. You know, it's sort of like in the olden days when if you ever use the word synergy in a corporate meeting, you got to check off a box on your bingo list. And in the world of Magic the Gathering, we talk about community all the time. So much so that I think people seem to think that this is like some secret word that we use at the company to make people think that this is something more than it really is. And I think this is one of the things that is not in the least bit overstated. Magic the Gathering and what really drew me into it and what kept me in it these past 20 years plus is that it really is about community. And, you know, there was a program we had many years ago, and because it's in the deep dredges of my memory, I can't remember exactly the themes or whatever, but we had a little catchphrase for a while that all you needed was a deck and a friend. And if you didn't have a friend, one would be provided to you. And basically, the whole idea was that it brought people together. And to this day, for good or for ill, in whatever context you see, magic brings people together. And whether it's 
passionately to meet regularly just to play with family and friends, or to passionately argue about how the next great design plan by Wizards of the Coast is going to ruin the game or what have you, it just creates, builds, and sustains community. For all the things that have been happening in the game over the years, I think if we just dug under all the complexity, the argument, the legality, the design, ultimately, everyone at their core is doing something to try to add to the community of the game. And really, when you're talking about something as complex as magic, as deep as it is, containing so many moving parts, it really is community that is necessary. If you were just watching a television commercial or saw a print ad, you wouldn't even begin to really understand what this game was or have a remote chance of learning how to play it. But if you sit down with a friend and he walks you through a game or you show up at the convention and you manage to uh, come across the Lady Planeswalker Society doing demos and you sit down and you realize, oh my gosh, this is very interesting, but it's interesting not only because it piques my intellectual interest, but it's clearly part of a community. And that part, I think, is what Magic the Gathering really brings to the table as a game, so much more than any of its design or artistic components, all of which are also second to none. You know, this conversation is bringing up a lot of memories of Magic in my life. I remember when I was in elementary school, I think I was just six, and um, there were always these two uh, kids, and they sat on this cement bench, and they played Magic. They had cards, and they had... But back then it was unsleeved, uh, you know, because, you know, we're like eight, yes. <laughs> six and eight. Then we're in elementary school and they're on a cement bench and they're and they're facing each other on this cement bench. There's a really small play area. Um, it was like a stack of like 120 cards. Yep. It, and it, it was like, I mean, you think EDH is like, you yes. know, a big pile. It's like 120, 150, sometimes even 200 cards. Sometimes they try to jam as many as they could. And they yep. were all frayed and definitely worn. I mean, much past trading condition. And they, But they would play. And it was so funny because they would always get into a huge argument, guaranteed yes. getting into a huge argument about the rules, about this and that, takesy-backsies and all that stuff. And another uh, iconic thing about it is that they would always draw a crowd. Yes. It was like wrestling. Whoever dropped that circle of protection first, we'd all be like, oh! Right, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, snap, look yep. at that! Like, it was hilarious because, you know, none of us knew how to play magic. Right. But we all knew about Circle of Protection. Yes. And I think the extraordinary thing about your story is that that is still happening today. Like, after all these years and this idea that we're now so sophisticated with our deck tech and our internet deck building and our sleeves and our double sleeves and our triple sleeves, that still occurs. One of the great joys of my life is after leaving my official role at Wizards of the Coast, and moving back into the community and the local game store is that I really remembered that first love that brought me into the idea of being part of a group of people who played Magic every week, every couple of days at the local shop, and teaching new people and seeing the joy in their faces when I would hand, like just this week, there was a kid in my store who, with his two brothers. And he wanted to, he was just playing magic and he wanted to know if he could sit in the back and play with his brothers and not be part of the official event because they didn't have enough decks, they didn't have enough money, and they were just getting started. And this boy's name was Soren, spelled with an E. And I said, Oh, you know, that's very exciting. I wish it was spelled with an I. 
And then I got to tell him about Soren and how he fits into the world of magic and the Planeswalkers. And they had exactly those decks. They didn't have sleeves and they were super large and they were built with whatever cards they happened to have. And they were talking about how there's going to be a magic event happening at their local library in October. And they were worried about not having enough cards. And I was able, because of my job and because I've been playing magic since forever, had cards and some free deck boxes and things like that sitting around. I was giving these to them. And they were just overwhelmed with just this stark joy in their faces that this was unbelievable to them that someone would not only know about their game, be interested in their game, but had free cool stuff to give them. Yeah, It really opens my heart up every single time I have an experience like this because it reminds me of how people who I played Magic with when I was starting out have now brought their children in to play Magic with them. And every generation, there is this new fascination with people who are discovering the community and how much joy there is in that. And you know, for someone like me, who is a high-level judge, who works at a lot of tournaments, who worked in the company, uh, knows a little bit about what's in the sausage, definitely knows where a lot of the bodies are buried, it can be very easy to become cynical about this world. And one of the reasons that I love my work volunteering as a weekly judge at a local store is the opportunity to be reminded of just what is the joy of magic. And when you talk about that crowd that gathered around and didn't even know how to play magic, I feel like that this is where we really need to recapture how we're marketing and advertising the game. Uh, We talked earlier about how I feel like one of the great things for the future of the game is that we can expand the marketplace so that people are no longer under the heel of the ownership companies like Wizards or Riot who own these games so that people can do great things beyond what the imaginations of the companies themselves have. And this idea of having like a wrestling type of experience where you didn't even know how the game was played, but you got super excited, that is something that we can reproduce. We have the people, we have the technology, we have all the resources And if we could only get the will and the permission from the people who were holding on to the rights and the legalities and all the complexities of the logistics behind the scenes to say, yes, let a thousand points of light be shown from the mountaintop, this could happen everywhere. And we would see a renaissance, I believe, of the game that is beyond anything that we've had in the last 25 years. I do feel that we are right now in 2016 and late 2016 and early 2017. I feel like we are going through a renaissance period. The storyline of the sets, and then there was Scars of Mirrodin, which was like, let's return to Mirrodin, right? And the Phyrexians came back, and there was another war, and Karn, we saw Karn, and I, I was like, Karn? I played in Urza Saga. I remember Karn. Yes. I have Karn Silver Golem in my binder. And um, and then just continuing that storyline of Return to Ravnica. Right. And, right? And, and like Innistrad. And then a kind of a return to Zendikar. And then yes. a return to Innistrad. Yep. And then now we're going to new places. These old villains are coming back. Yes. Right? And we know uh, in upcoming sets, there's Amonkhet. And there is Nicole Bolas in Amonkhet. And we're like, ooh, even more, more old villains coming back. Exactly. I think that one of the things that is very important and that we shouldn't miss out on is that we really are 
constantly building on what we've learned from the past and growing from that. I think I've mentioned on many occasions that one of my philosophies in life is that people who have been working on things long enough should step aside so that newer, better people with fresher ideas can step in. I think one of the things that we've seen in the game of Magic is that Wizards of the Coast, under their own vision and under the leadership of Hasbro, has been doing that. We've had a couple of reorganizations internally that have changed the vision of the game. As players, we've seen the outcome of that in terms of getting rid of core sets and going to two rotations a year. Uh, we've seen that from the new design philosophy of looking six years ahead instead of two or three years ahead. And all of that is really helpful in terms of building story. But another thing that is very important is that you have all this new blood in R&D. You have a new president now who really understands the idea of the future of using technology and being involved in esports. Uh, you have this whole new vision for how we're showing the face of magic to the world. You know, when I first heard about Kaladesh like half a year, a year ago, my first thought was, oh my gosh, it's another artifact set. Somebody in R&D is going to be up against the wall to defend how this was also mismanaged and broken. And yet the revelation of Kaladesh is amazing. You know, someone came up with this idea that an artificer's fair with dwarves and people creating things out of Ethereum could be this new way of looking at how artifacts could be implemented in the game. And it's wonderful. But then you also see people like Mark Rosewater. And if you do not listen to Mark Rosewater's podcast, you are really missing out. I feel like there are rarely people in industry who have the sort of insight and humility and hunger for learning that Mark does. If you listen to his podcast, if you listen to his talks, one of the things that you learn is that for someone who is very firmly in the old guard, he is always interested in learning. He is always interested in becoming better. He is constantly willing to make changes that some of us who are entrenched in our ways would say, no, we've been around for 100 years and know better than you. Mark is constantly showing up and saying, you know what? We messed that up, or I didn't see this clearly, or I would have done this differently. And the idea of someone like him being deep in the thick of R&D and looking at the future of magic is just amazing because knowing that there are people like him who can bring that continuity of education and awareness and wisdom and partnering with all these new members of R&D who can see the game in a fresh light and with their new understanding of technology and what's going on in the world outside of us, that is a partnership that has really been demonstrated in how the sets have just been extraordinary. So often, I think we look at the art or the design of a set and think, wow, this is great. The next set is going to be terrible and boring because they couldn't possibly do better. And then something like Kaladesh happens and go, well, we were wrong again. They just did better. After I spoke to Mark Rosewater uh, with my interview with him, he was like, he was like, how do we not break anything? Because we have a, a group of players that want things that are familiar. Well, why can't we go back to this place or go back to, and revisit these things? Well, we don't want to do things that we've already done. So we want to do new things, but we can't make it too new that then players who have played the game are like, wow, that's not magic anymore. Right. I really feel that Mark, in his role in the community as also in Wizards, um, and also as a gamer and a game designer and a storyteller himself... He occupies a very special place because he has to create and not 
break, right? But he also has to be willing to destroy. Exactly. And that's very difficult. That's a very fine balance. And he has to do this all with a very enthusiastic smile on his face. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, we also talked about magic as an esport, which is so interesting because we are playing a physical game, a physical right. medium of game, the uh, physical cards, cardboard on the table in person. We can play magic online, but that's still a digital representation of the core aspect of the game, which is physical. Correct. I was speaking to my brother, who is a pro gamer. He he was asking me about magic, and he and we always joke about magic. He plays like Overwatch and League and Counter Strike and all that stuff, and yep. he's like, "I can't play magic." And I was like, "Why?" He's like, "It's too hard." And I was like, "What do you mean it's too hard? Like how you're playing at your high level? That's very hard too." But then he introduced a concept to me that magic sets are patches. Yes, and I had never thought of that before. When mm-hmm. whenever you get a patch in League, you're rebalancing things. Some people get nerfed. Some people get super OP. Yep. And, uh, and that's how we kind of think of certain things. Like new cards come out. Like for example, when uh, Battle for Zendikar came out and the Eldrazi came back, it completely warped Legacy, Standard, and Modern. Right. And in that sense, I'm just like, yes, the new things have to come out. New mechanics have to come out. These new sets with new storylines, like. I do understand sometimes it stings a little bit that I will never see Counterspell ever again. <laughs> I will never be able to play Counterspell in any context ever again. But, uh, you know, it something new has to come out of the game. Right. And I think one of the things that is important about understanding the evolution, and you mentioned esports and how there's this big push now to enter into that arena, is that we are in sort of a revolutionary period of... And we're late to the game, as it were. Uh, it turns out that a lot of people are already kind of capturing the space. But one of the things that I think is a danger is that we need to be very careful to understand that we are not, in fact, an esport. At least not in the traditional sense. That we are a very different game with our own specialty and a niche that really attracts and draws something out of the community and out of people. That you don't get out of an esport. You know, when your brother talks about how he couldn't play magic because it's too hard, it isn't just about patches, right? It's about having to engage a community. It's about physically doing things in the game and understanding it. Most of the esports are rooted in games where there's an engine that does the heavy lifting for you. And sure, it's a great skill set. You need to push some buttons, shoot some enemies, steal some treasures, you know, break some jars, whatever it is that you're doing. But at the end of the day, you have a skill set that in many esports is more akin to some sort of athletics, where you're running around, you have some physical engagement with the tools of play, but in fact, there's an engine behind that doing the hard work. Magic isn't like that. The hard work that is being done in Magic is in the brain of the player. The hard work that's really being done is in the socialization of the individuals who are coming together to play. I really love the fact that Wizards of the Coast has moved into this newest generation where they're tacking on this esports title to their job descriptions to push them to start thinking in this arena. But we are also in a time of danger where it can be very easy to forget who we really are and how our identity is uniquely different than these other esports. And if we can find that real balance where we can show off the community of the game and the excitement of what it actually brings to the table in a way that 
doesn't cause you to have to watch an entire game of Magic. Uh, we want to see the personalities. We want to see your face when you're in a game. We want to see the reaction of the crowd. And I feel like we have many of the tools for doing that, but we can go too far and we can make it into something that Magic is not. And that could be to the detriment of the future of the game. So we have to be very careful to not lose our soul in the process of trying to capture a larger piece of that business marketplace. In speaking a lot about esports and things, uh, James, you were also telling me about uh, the University of Washington's program and organization to get different esports. Yes. So basically, we have been thinking about this for a number of years. And by we, I mean people in the community, people who play Magic on campus. For a long time, we always thought, wouldn't it be great if we could get a scholarship for someone to come to Magic, uh, say, oh, now that there's no longer a scholarship series tournament for Wizards of the Coast, it would be even better if the scholarship came from the campus. That someone who was going to become a champion Magic player would be able to say, I play Magic at a professional level. I would like to come to your university. Can I get a scholarship and I'll wear your jersey or I'll make your school famous? For a long time, that was sort of a pie-in-the-sky sort of thing. There have in the past been magic teams named after the schools that they came from, but that was coincidental. They were never officially sanctioned by their universities. They didn't get any university branding. And of course, the universities in America are under the umbrella of the NCAA, and so there's a great deal of legalities about who can use their logo and who can uh, show up on site and have that on the screen or on television or using it as any kind of marketing. And so at first we were thinking, okay, we just need to create a presence. We need at some point people to recognize that this is going on. But amazingly enough, and uh, maybe not surprisingly, once an idea takes root, there will always be a creative person or an excited individual or a thought leader who says, you know, I can make this happen. And it turned out that just this past year at the University of Washington, an individual by the name of Kevin Huang basically said, you know, I'll bet that if I can get all of the gamer type individuals at the university together into a room and create a unified front and bring that to the University of Washington, they would recognize that there's a community of people here who are not playing a traditional ball sport, who are not competing in the engineering competitions, who are not uh, writing the next big app or starting the next uh, startup, who are going to be potentially individuals that they want to target, who are going to be the thinkers and the programmers and the coders and the community leaders of the future whose hobby happens to be this other thing that we haven't given recognition to yet. And so he brought together the people who play League of Legends. He brought together the people who play Dungeons and Dragons and Dota and Magic the Gathering and sat them all down and said, let us all brand ourselves as one organization and then together come to the university and get their approval and get branding and get money and get them to say, we support this. And we are now taking really big steps. Earlier this summer, the Pac-12 announced that they would be doing esports on television as part of their larger competitive infrastructure. And this is huge for something like the Pac-12 that is basically so well known for their ball sports to step up and say, this is a thing that we recognize is an opening salvo to schools around the country that this is something worthy of recognition. And we've made some small steps to having the university recognize our group. And uh, now the WGA at the University of Washington here in Seattle 
has a degree of recognition, has exposure to UW Athletics. We've been approved to use their logo for some of our programs that we're putting forward this year. And what our hope is, is to be able to carry this ball forward across the end zone and to really deliver on a product that says, it is possible to create gameplay infrastructure that is not created by and organized by and dictated by the companies that make these games. Uh, We're also working with uh, a number of military organizations. One of the people who's on the leadership team for the WGA at the University of Washington is a vet who actually started the University of Washington's Veterans Affairs Department. And so he is also someone who brings a great deal of leadership and wisdom and experience to that organization, but is also an individual who can tie us to the military. And for a very long time, Wizards of the Coast actually had a military league. And that has either gone away or has become something that is only independently handled. But the reality is that many of our men and women in arms forces play magic and are involved in esports and play Dungeons and Dragons. And we would like to see what we're building at the University of Washington also extend to them and to create official tournament play in the U.S. military that can engage all of these people who are also playing but are not getting recognition and not receiving awareness from the larger world. And I feel like this is a marriage where if we can produce all of these programs, eventually the companies behind them will realize that there is so much energy and so much opportunity out there that they will loosen their grip on their brand enough that more people can start doing things independently and creating a world for their game and a marketplace for the game that they themselves never could have imagined. I have heard that men and women in armed forces do play a lot of magic. Oh, yes, they do. In fact, when our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were really active, I had the pleasure of sending cases of product over there to our troops, and it was always very well received. Uh, I have a bunch of challenge coins at home that I've gotten from people in the military thanking me because I happen to get enough product from my work as a judge that I can afford to sometimes shift some of it off. And it turns out because sometimes you're sitting in the desert or in a submarine or on deployment, and there is not much to do. And in many of those places, you don't have good internet access. You can't play Dota. You can't play Overwatch. But you can have your magic deck. And I have not yet met a single person who took their magic deck with them on their deployments who did not almost immediately find someone else to play with. And this is another opportunity where we can not only create something to acknowledge that these people exist, but to also recognize the existence of that infrastructure out there and to bring them into that larger community of magic players. And when they come back home from their work for our government and in the armed services, they then can much more easily plug automatically into a community made available to them. And I think that is also something extraordinary that is missing and that we can really do a big and a good job with. Yeah, I think that is wonderful. You know, James, what you said was really interesting about um, the way paper magic has a distinct advantage over other digital games. I read an article a while ago, and it was uh, more of a thought technology piece about the piece of paper versus Apple. And Apple has iCloud and has all these devices and has great computing products and iPhone and the iPad and things like that. Yep. How do those things as a way to convey and communicate information 
stack up to the humble piece of paper, right? Yep. So, uh, you know, the long and short of it was that the paper loads instantly. Every, yes. the, the, the read-write on that is instantaneous. However, it's not ubiquitous. You leave it in your jeans pocket and you don't have it somewhere else, right? Um, but uh, without talking too much about tech philosophy and tech theory, Magic the Gathering has that advantage. Yes. It loads instantaneously. The minute you pull out your deck from your deck box and start to shuffle and sit across from an opponent, you have all of the comprehensive rules at your disposal. You have all of the scenarios available and that engine, yes. you know, is is loaded and ready to go. You don't need any kind of a connection. And in even in some cases, you don't even need another opponent. Right. right. A lot of times just for playtesting, I solitaire decks out. Right. Mm -hmm. And and also in some cases, people will proxy things either from, you know, a, a card is damaged or lost or they're they're playing, you know, power legacy or vintage and they and they you know they have access to a proxy or exactly. or an altar, or we're playtesting for an upcoming set that has been spoiled but not physically yet released and we need to playtest those cards. We have access to proxies, right? right? So um those things you don't really have access to in the same way in in, in a digital platform. Exactly. What you mentioned is very important. Uh, similarly to you, I also follow a lot of other industries and things. I have a bunch of friends who are writers and in publishing. One of the podcasts that I listened to recently did a piece on paper books. And you might remember just a few years ago, there was talk about ebooks destroying the paper book market. And we saw all these larger publishers going out of business and uh, borders closing their doors and what have you. And what this podcast was talking about is how paper books have come back. There has been a bit of a resurgence, and now the marketplace for ebooks has leveled off and is not increasing in any market way. And I think one of the things that you mentioned about how not only does it load instantaneously and gives you this immediate gratification for something that is right there, but I think we cannot sell short the fundamentals of just 50,000 years of evolution. The reality is that old technologies never go away. There is a muscle memory in ourselves and there is a muscle memory in our minds about how wonderful it is to see something, to touch something, to engage something. And for all the value that technology brings to us as a tool for keeping people connected, for playtesting across the oceans, uh, for having access to magic at 1.30 in the morning when everyone else is uh, gone and my local game shop isn't open, the reality is that being able to sit down next to another human being and play magic with cards that I can feel and touch is something that we cannot allow ourselves to underestimate and to lose out on. There is a great, great danger that if we be decide that the future of magic is in esports and that in the future we're going to play magic on digital platforms, that for me would be the beginning of the end. If we end up thinking that that is the future, that will be the death knell of the game. Because as soon as a better technology comes along, they will simply end us. But if we learn from history and understand that old technologies never go away and that books will never go away and beautiful art will never go away and make that the root of how we see the future of developing magic in organized play as a game and as a tool for building these communities of people, we will be on the right track and my great-great-grandchildren will still be playing this game. Yes, there is something to be said about millennia of human evolution that we just cannot write off because of society, culture, and technology. 
In episode three of season one of Kitchen Table Magic, I spoke to Adam Yurchek. And Adam is a pro. He plays a lot online. But he says, you know, there's a difference between playing online and playing in paper. I will miss triggers. Yep. Because online, they just happen in a different way. And so we just kind of, and I thought that was a very interesting perspective. And I never thought someone with such high skill would even consider that subset of problems, right. <laughs> you know, which is so interesting, right? And another thing uh, that I think is important about not wanting to jump too quickly into the digital realm and the trends of, of computing and software and esports, which do have a lot of benefits, don't get me wrong, Sure, is that um, I talk about this particular card a lot in my storytelling, is that my first rare that I ever pulled was a Sarah Sanctum out of an Urza Saga pack. Exciting. And I have that exact card, like quadruple sleeved in a very special place, you know, locked away. Yep. And whenever I see that card or hold it or pull it out just to look at it, or when I play it in EDH, the memories come flooding back about that time in my life when I was a kid and I didn't know this game and I first was introduced to it. Right. And then, but when I go on to Magic Online and I'm sorting my cards or making a deck, I also see my Liliana of the Veil digitally. It was my first pull, ironically, it was my first pull out of my um, original Innistrad draft. Okay. I don't have that rush of memory. I no. don't have that rush of emotion, that rush of feeling. And you never will. And, and I never will, because I also don't know which one it is digitally. Right. Be because there are multiples. And so, is it this one? Is it this one? Are, I mean, does it even matter? Exactly. I, it's a pile with a number on it. Can I even separate them out? Exactly. And so, I, it, it's, it's a very different feeling. Right. Digitally versus physically. And, and another thing that you talked about, James, is um, it's about community, community, community. It's not a buzzword that we check off our bingo list. It is a core essence of what Magic the Gathering is right. as a whole. Right, all the twenty-five, probably thirty million people who have played the game, who have ever played the game, right? It's a, it is about community. You know, when you're at a concert or at a big event or at a GP, there's electricity in the air. Yes, of the first two rounds, you know, and like round three hits. Oh, now we know all the pros are coming in with their buys. Right. Like we now, I actually get to sit in front of. You know, there's 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 an energy in the air. But if I'm on you know, YouTube, and there's a live stream, and I, and I look at the number, and there's like 47k other people, I don't feel that electricity, because I'm still just sitting in my PJs in my living room. Exactly. Right? There is a difference, like you said, James, about we cannot put aside millennia of human evolution. There is something there in the physicalness of it. There is something there with being with other people. There is much deeper meaning that is intangible that we cannot put our finger on. And that is also the essence of why this podcast even exists. It's about the people in the community. Right? Exactly so. Yeah. And just to bring this whole full circle, if I ever get any credit for anything I have ever contributed to the world of magic, is that whatever piece I played in the world of Friday Night Magic, that is what I want to be remembered for. That at some point in time, I had my hands in developing and being part of birthing a program that is foundational to this idea of community. Because I feel like that no matter what ends up happening, whether we end up creating uh, new ways to play or new days on which to play, or the GP infrastructure changes so dramatically that we can't recognize it for what it is today, I am convinced that if Magic is still being played a hundred years from now, some incarnation of Friday Night Magic will still exist because exactly of that community and that energy of being able to show up 
and have a bunch of friends and to go to a place where everybody knows your name and you could put your hands on a physical card and an artifact of memory that you cannot get in any other way. Absolutely, yes, I love that. James, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? Sure, as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> okay, wonderful. All right. Rapid fire question number one. Of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, what's your favorite color and why? Absolutely, it would have to be blue. Uh, number one, I can't be the mysterious James Lee if blue wasn't my favorite color. Uh, and I always tell people that people with my personality and background are almost always blue players. We just like the idea of uh, managing risk, of controlling environments, of changing the rules of the game. I actually believe that blue is really not just one aspect of how the color wheel interacts with each other, but it really is everything that we look at all the other colors and go, oh, how cute that you do this thing. We do it too. We just know when to do it at the right place at the right time. And I really like how blue really symbolizes the idea of manipulating the environment and anticipating how people think and what people do and really takes advantage of putting choice on the table. I don't know if this is one of your other questions, but people often ask me what my favorite magic card is. And my favorite magic card is Standstill is a card that is blue in, as far as I'm concerned, in every way that I like blue. It basically is a doomed if you do, doomed if you don't card, and you put this burden of psychological weight on your opponent when this card is in play. That's what I like about blue. As soon as I lay my first island in any game of Magic, I can see a small part of my opponent dying inside, and that is what I look for in every game that I play. <laughs> Have you listened to uh, the episode with Jordan Isaka? He No, I he, haven't yet. He made a blue-white-red legacy standstill deck. Oh, my and, goodness. Yeah, now, really... now I have definitely got to go back and listen to that one. <laughs> James, question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? Wow, that is really hard because the one change that I used to fight for and that I got laughed at about by other people in R&D and organized play... I already got. And so, because many years later, it turned out I have always disliked the idea of mana burn, and I thought it was silly and brought nothing to the game whatsoever. And then some smarter, wiser people at the company, after my old guard of friends left the company, said, hey, why do we have this weird mana burn thing? And apparently they wisely realized that it was not a good idea. So that's gone now. I've thought about a whole bunch of answers like this over the years, how to reduce randomness, how to get rid of things like land glut and uh, having better ways to mulligan and whatnot. But it turns out that I feel like, especially with the recent mulligan rule change where you can scry, we've hit a sweet spot where we have gotten to the point where Magic's strategic play elements are strong enough to be the dominant theme of how the game is actually played, but with just enough randomness that 
it is still the fun and exciting game that we look for when we are drawing that next card and hoping that we build our deck in the most optimal way. So at this point, as far as the game's design is concerned, without looking into the future of mechanics and whatnot and copying and pasting some of the things Mark has talked about in his podcast about the future of design, I think the game is actually in a perfect place right now with very little that could be changed without altering it so substantially that it would fundamentally change how we see the future of the game. Very interesting. Very interesting. A follow-up question to that, James, do you have any ideas of how to get rid of uh, getting flooded on land? <laughs> oh, uh, I, for many years, uh, looking at other games and things like that, I actually have toyed with many ways of looking at how land plays could be basically codified in the game so that, for instance, I looked at the idea where a land deck would be separate from your spell deck and where a player could choose on a given turn whether to play a land or a spell, which would still be random within the deck, but would allow you to gain some control over that aspect of it. Um, all of those ideas have their pluses and minuses. It would definitely bring different design space into the game, but it would also take design space out. Uh, I feel like some of the ideas have merit, but what I've learned from many years of working in the gaming industry and with game design in general is that a lot of things that look good on paper or when you're thinking about it in the shower in the morning ends up being terrible once it gets out into the world and 10,000 people start playing with it. And so I feel like we could still tweak that aspect of the game a little bit so that people are not so frustrated with discovering that they have fought through 10 rounds of grueling play only to be taken out by some vagary of drawing terribly for one game. Uh, that's just a feel bad that I would almost do anything to take out of the game. But I feel like I still am just barely away from coming up with a good methodology that can solve the problem without ruining the game in some other ways. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I agree. I've been thinking about that a lot as well. James, question number three. If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? So in a real unrealistic world, if it were up to me, everyone would have a golden ticket. And what I mean by that is people need access. We have Magic players who are young people just getting out of the Pokemon and getting into middle school who want to play at FNM and don't have a standard deck. We have people in the military who don't have access to a play group or don't have recognition for the type of play that they do. Uh, we have people in far-reaching parts of the world who can't get to an FNM or cannot get access to a local game store. And I feel like if you give out cards, if you give out any kind of physical product, if you give out any deck or any of those things, or if you go the extreme other direction and say, oh, everyone will get a chance to play on the Pro Tour at once in their lives, that's not really satisfying. Uh, we want to earn the things that we come by. But as I've been saying over and over again in our discussion today, it's really all about community. And community is about access. And what I would love to do is for every person in the world who plays Magic to have access to a community, which means if you are far away and can't find other Magic players, that a club will form near you, a store will open near you. If you're in a far off country and your dream is to go see the best players at a GP somewhere in Northern Europe, I get you a ticket there. If you want to show up at a Pro Tour and talk to someone that has been a hero to you your entire life, I want to get you there. 
And if you're a 10-year-old who just wants to be able to play regularly at your local game shop, I want to talk to your parents and find a way to get you there. So yes, a golden ticket to plug you into a community just to remind these people that you may be far away and far off and alone, but somewhere out there, there are people like me and other Magic players and people who are thinking about you every single day, trying to come up with different ways that Magic can be played so you feel included. And if that can bring you into contact with more friends and more physical cards and more places to enjoy this game that has brought so many hundreds of thousands of people together over the years, I want to give you that. That's a wonderful sentiment. Question number four, what do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? I think I hinted at this a bit earlier. I believe that the future of Magic is going to be more freedom. I'm encouraged by some of the individuals that I've been able to talk to inside the company and a few of the people who have been hired of late that there may be a time coming, hopefully not too far in the future, where we can overcome some of the legal and onerous boundaries of licensing and ownership so that game companies like Wizards of the Coast will be able to say there should be a way we can let people play Magic in a beautiful, extraordinary way that they want to that may not fit into the brand vision or model that we want. Sure, we can still own this piece of the game. We can still own how we present a new set. We can still stage amazing productions that we put on television or YouTube or what have you. But somewhere out there, there are thousands of people who want to play Magic in their own way. And for years, I think the company philosophy has sort of forced these people to play in the shadows. There are probably people who could have played in a way that would have created a existing military league uh, with real rewards. People could have played in such a way that have already created some sort of NCAA tournament infrastructure, winning scholarships or prize money of some sort. And I feel like that there are some burdens that have been imposed by just some individuals, in some cases, legitimately fearful about legal liabilities, and some other people who simply lack creativity or don't want to let go of the fact that if they say yes to something, it might cost them their jobs. And you know what? I've made numerous decisions in my careers over the years where I could see what I was doing eventually eliminating my job. And you know, I feel like I'm speaking from a place of privilege when I say, that's fine. If I'm getting something better out there for the community, I'm more than willing to have that happen. And I know not everyone can say that, but I don't want that to ever stand in the way of a company being able to say, if we just loosen our grip, greater things can happen and everyone can win. And in my opinion, we are now at the cusp of a moment when magic can move into a larger, freer world where the creativity of organizers and magic players out in the world can start producing content and events and ways of playing the game that Wizards of the Coast either never thought of or never thought they could allow. And then we'll find that they're realizing that this is something that can be very good for everyone. And when they say yes, the community and the pocketbooks of the people buying Magic in the world will say yes back. And we will see this game moving into a whole new era. Wow. Yeah, that is a very that is a very interesting future to to think about and I'm excited. I'm always very hopeful. So Same. 
And James, last, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience? You know, I hate to sound like a broken record, but I think that everything I've said so far makes my answer pretty obvious, and that is keep playing and keep pushing. If you find someone that you think might enjoy magic, include them in your community. If you know someone who might benefit from showing up in your store, invite them. If you find someone who is far away or doesn't have a judge, find out how you can connect these people. We are, you know, as the old-timey magic evangelist, you know, back when I had a job title and the papal ring and the crozier of office that allowed me to create things just by signing a piece of paper. Really, we're in the world of greater democratization of the game than ever in the history of the game. And every one of you out there is an ambassador. And the joy of people, people like, like Travis Wu, who is out there in the world just learning and growing and doing so many great things, people like Chris Furterer, who has his hands in so many different pieces of the community here, not even just in magic, but in all these other creative ways that he's building community. People like Mo- Mark Rosewater, who is so enthusiastic for so many things and is even after all these years, so interesting, continuing to learn and to grow and to make what he built even better than what he saw, not being afraid to tear it down. What I like our listeners to know that they can do is to keep speaking out, to keep saying, we can do better, we can do something different, we can do something greater. And if enough voices rise up, even the people in the ivory towers of Hasbro may be forced to listen and realize that they are leaving a great opportunity and an entire population of people on the table if they do not say yes to you. So I feel like you know, if, if I can take the risk of becoming the Bernie Sanders of Magic the Gathering, I see a revolution coming, and you are that revolution. And that is my message to your listeners. That is wonderful. Thank you so much, James, for taking a moment to sit down with me today. I know this is a very rare opportunity to have a voice like yours be heard in this podcast. And uh, I also just want to acknowledge you for everything that you've done for the community in its history. You've put in a lot of hard work and you've worked with a lot of really amazing people in a very early stage for a company that produces a game that has brought joy to millions of people around the world. And also, uh, you're incredibly humble and incredibly gracious and your sincerity is so clear and apparent here and and also your passion. So thank you so much. And also, your work creating f <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that there's just so many people right now that uh, are just, you know, would love to shake your hand and give you a big hug because really f is uh, the cornerstone of what creates that community. And so thank you so much, James, for, for being here with us. You are very welcome. It's been a great pleasure. And to everyone out there, I love a good hug. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with James Lee. I'm glad that James made the point that magic should not lose its soul in our rush to become an eSport. I am also grateful for the work that James does with collegiate organizations in order to bring scholarships to students, and that he shares his magic product with our men and women in uniform. He's an amazing role model for this community. Thank you so much, James. Thanks to everyone tuning into the show. I want to take a moment to thank Patreon supporters of Kitchen Table Magic. A big thank you to Marcus from Germany. Marcus tells me that he's been listening from season one. Thank you so much for the support. Also, thank you to my friend Brian, who's also been a Patreon supporter since the beginning. Thank you, Brian, so much. And how awesome it is that we have two Patreon supporters and thousands of listeners. I'm so happy and grateful for everyone contributing. Thank you so much. 
And remember, I'm here to answer your questions. Drop me a line. Let me know what you think. Email me, sam at kitchentablemagic.org. I'm on Facebook, Kitchen Table Magic Podcast, and on Twitter, at KTM Podcast. Like I said from last time, I'm working on getting some swag for listeners, so please support Kitchen Table Magic on Patreon. A few bucks goes a long way. Maybe I'll make some Take My Energy energy tokens, or maybe there'll be something an Amonkhet that we can make fun of. Mummy tokens, sandstorm tokens, crocodile tokens, mummified crocodile sandstorm cat tokens, whatever it is, I'll make sure I make all of those tokens if we hit our goal of $100 on Patreon. Thanks everyone for listening. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. Yeah, so there's a bag which is indiscriminate. Uh, it says hot and spicy cracker, but it has a picture of a fish. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what cracker would taste like a fish, but I guess we'll find out. The fish looks like a knockoff Magikarp. Yeah, it's very Pokemon-esque. And then we have, <laughs> uh, we have some strawberry-filled koala cookies. I already had one. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they're koalas and they're strawberry frosting filled. So yeah, I think it will taste better than you know real koala or whatever a Pokemon would taste like. <laughs> and you were asking me earlier, Brad, about what you thought Pokemon would taste like. Yeah, I'm curious. I don't know much about the people in Pokemon World. Do they eat the Pokemon? Are there other normal animals as well? It's snack time with Brad Rutherford. Between eating strange snacks and debating about what Pokemon tastes like, Brad and I actually get to talk about some magic. Brad Rutherford is the master of the modern deck Abzan Company, Malira Combo, Podless Pod, whatever you want to call it. He's had over 400 matches with Abzan Company and a whopping 70% win rate. Join me and Brad for a special snack-filled deck tech of Abzan Company, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. Oh, 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 oh. If you're multicolored, that's cool too.